You are God's good idea. We started this whole series with that idea, that insight from Psalm 139, where the psalmist prays this prayer, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Like God designed you to be you. Only you can play that part that God has made you for. No one else can. You have this unique shape to your life, this beautiful mix of your spiritual gift and your heart desires, your natural God-given abilities, your personality, and all those experiences you have gone through and will go through. I've been really encouraged by the response that I've had to our series so far. I've had a lot of people say, okay, Dave, I think I know what my spiritual gift is. What do I do? And I find myself saying this, you be patient (laughs) because knowing your spiritual gift is one part and it's an important part, but there's more to it than that. We saw last week uh, uh, that we talked about our hearts, that our our God-given desires are a part of what need to line up with the thing that God has called us to do as well. You know what, I, I found myself thinking of, of Venn diagrams, like, you know, those pictures where those the overlapping things. I think I have an example of one, right? Yeah, bank robbers, DJs, mom taking off your sweater, and preachers, are you with me? As God is my witness, you know, I'm not asking twice. Everyone on the floor, put your hands in the air. Okay, Venn diagrams. I was thinking of how, you know, we maybe have made our own Venn diagram in the process here. Uh, oh, yeah, that one too, um, Things I like to do, things I'm good at, things that make money, things I do. (laughs) Some of you might feel a bit that way at this point. But fear not, what we're working toward is is this sort of thing here, where our spiritual gift, our heart, our abilities, our personality experience combine to make our unique shape, the thing that we're going to find is the sweet spot to work from. Now, we're looking at abilities today, and you might have wondered, like, what, what's the difference then between a spiritual gift and just like our God-given abilities? And if that's your question, it's a great one. And here's what I'd say. Every human being is created by God, and therefore, every talent, every ability you have is a God-given gift. That's true. Theologians call this common grace, common in the sense that every person shares it. All of humanity is endowed with Uh, these brilliant capacities to do beautiful things for good and for God's glory. That's true of every single person. The difference is, Christians, though, when we come to Christ, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and therefore God gifts us to to work out things that are beyond even our natural abilities. Uh, There would otherwise not be there at all, perhaps, but the Spirit enhances maybe or propels forward our natural abilities or gives us something that we never even had before. Uh, Spiritual gifts are given with the express purpose of, of building up the common good, especially within the community of faith, for building up the church. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, I think that actually the overlap of what a worship Uh, leader, a good worship leader is a great example, and this came up in a conversation I was having with a friend this week. Uh, In the sense of this, worship leading will require a set of skills, abilities like musicianship and singing ability, at least some of it, so that you're not 
Um, yeah, so that people are edified by what they hear. <laughs> How do I say this nicely? <laughs> There's the ability to plan and manage, to create arrangements, to manage a team of people. But you'll notice musical ability isn't on the spiritual gift list. Worship leader isn't a spiritual gift. Now, it's a set of abilities. However, you know, you could be an incredibly talented musician and singer, and you could choose to use those abilities to serve God, and that would be wonderful. But there's this spiritual gifting side as well. When you see someone who's great at leading a congregation in worship, it's probably because they have a pastoral or a prophetic gifting. They're able to take all those abilities, but then allow what God has done inside of them in terms of leadership, pastoral care, uh, pastoring a congregation into the presence of God. And that is not just a natural ability piece. There's something additional to that, which is a God-given spiritual gift. And so that's an example of where those two things might overlap and intersect. So I would say there is an overlap, if you'd say that Venn diagram here, of abilities and spiritual gift, and both of these are given by God and to be used for Him, for His glory. And so let's dive in a little bit more. We're going to look at a parable. If you have your Bibles uh, open to, to Matthew chapter 25, we're looking at a parable that Jesus tells right at the end of His life. He's preparing His followers for life where He will ascend back to the Father before he returns and comes again. There's this in-between time, and he's preparing his followers how to know in, how to live, pardon me, in that space between. And that's where we're picking up our jumping, point, uh, jumping off point to talk about our God-given abilities for his purposes. We're going to see three things. First of all, this parable will give us a warning, a warning not to waste what we've been entrusted. Two, it will give us a better sense of our significance in Jesus' kingdom renewal project. And three, it will help us see that our talents, in the sense of our our abilities, our time, and our treasures, they aren't really ours. They're God's. And that encourages us to put them to good use. So let me just pray as we begin. Father, we thank you that you inspired this author to write down the words of Jesus so that we would have them even today. And Holy Spirit, we ask that our hearts would be wide open to everything you want to say to us through this text and through this message. We pray that we would be great hearers of the word and also doers of it too. Amen. So Matthew 25, I'm going to start reading at verse 14. Again, it, and it is referring to the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as Matthew likes to put it. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold or five talents. To another, two bags, and to another, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who'd received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness." 
The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who'd received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I've not sown and gathered where I've not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, it would have re- I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you may be thinking, wow, that took a dark turn. (laughs) It started off so positive and then hard left. Um, Well, the text, it does start off with with this positive picture, but here's a few things. We're we're just going to start by kind of maybe clearing out some of our objections so that we can hear what we really need to hear. Jesus does intend to wake us up to the spiritual reality of what's going on. He's waking us up to our role in using what He's given us for His glory. He's telling us, I guess, there's a, a, a contrast here between these two good and faithful servants and the one wicked and lazy one. He's saying that we've been given our gifts and abilities, and we're responsible to use these, and we will be held accountable for what we do with them. And we need to know this. In the ancient world, uh, there would be wealthy landowners like this, and they go on a trip, and they'll leave their property and their investments in the care of their servants. So these servants knew that they were responsible to manage this well. They're expected to work with what the master has entrusted them. The same is true for each of us. Whatever you have, whether that's financial means, abilities, a level of privilege that others don't just simply because of where you were born or the education you received or the space that you sit in culturally, whatever we have, we are responsible to God because that's been entrusted to us. It doesn't belong to us. We're stewards of it. So yeah, this text is an encouragement to use what we've been given, and it's a warning not to misuse it. So if we thought that this master just seemed, well, maybe a little bit mean-spirited, we need to know a few things. Number one, Jesus' parables often use surprising characters to illustrate elements of God's activity. But these characters, like the landowner here, they're not, to be, they're not meant to be read as a, a sort of direct, fully-orbed description of God's character. The way the parable functions will hint at some important facets, that's true. We get a sense of uh, the gracious gift of talents, and we get a sense of the joy when we use them well. It also illustrates the seriousness of Jesus' message that we are accountable and that God's justice is real. So all those things are true. But again, this isn't a sum total of what God is like. We actually need the whole of the Scriptures to understand that. And to see that, we we particularly need to see how the Scriptures all lead us to Jesus, who is the most perfect picture of God's character. 
We see how He redeems us back from sin and death by giving His very life for us. But there is a right response to all of that. There's a right way to respond to what God has done for us in Jesus, and the wicked servant doesn't get it and doesn't do it. Just notice the difference in how these servants view their master. The first two seem to happily get on with taking these finances entrusted them and then getting to work, investing them wisely. And then they happily come back to their master knowing, like they're coming with joy. They've got something in their hands and they're celebrated by their master as well. So you see their attitude is completely different to this third person. Compare it with the third man. Uh, The scholars I read, they all agreed the wickedness of this third servant is due primarily to his attitude toward the master, which in turn leads to laziness and squandering his opportunity. He reveals that attitude actually in his words when he says, I know you're a hard man. Question, how does he know that? When When the man replies to him, he doesn't mention being hard or anything like that. So he's made some major assumptions. He has some misconceptions about the master. All the scholars, again, I agreed, agreed that this man misrepresents the master's character. Notice when the master responds and brings his, uh, pardon me, and his excuses, he doesn't agree with the servant about being a hard man. Now, last week, Ricky talked about how we too can have misconceptions about God's character. We, he showed us a picture from the Sistine Chapel that depicts God as this kind of like grumpy, stern-faced, old uh, white man with like long white hair. And that is not, some of us might have that picture in our heads. That is not the God we read of in Scripture. We read of one who, who tells us to call him Father and to trust him like a child running into the lap of their daddy. That's who we're shown in the Scriptures. So this parable should actually drive us to get to know who God really is. And we do that primarily by studying the whole of the Scriptures and seeing how Jesus is God's fullest revelation. That shifts our motives. That shifts how we think about serving. And it protects us from lame excuses. Because God will not, as this story indicates, buy our lame excuses. There is real accountability for what we do with what we have. Uh, D.C. Steinsman, he says it well. He speaks of God's judgment in this passage as mercifully severe. He explains it this way. The swift justice meted out to the lazy servant puts a merciful end to any notion that the disobedient and the dishonest will be able to blackmail their way into the kingdom of heaven by manipulating the goodness of God or playing on divine pity. God's goodness is too clever to be taken in by such nursery tricks. Divine pity will forgive sins, but it will not condone them. Love and accountability, they are not opposites. God's love seeks us and restores us. He makes it possible for us to now live in sync with God's kingdom. And see, if we do love Him, we will want to give ourselves to know Him as He really is and put to use the good things He's given us. How we act, you might say, tells the truth about what we believe, who it is we really follow. And that will include what we do with the abilities He's entrusted us. Uh, There's this song by a band called Jimmy Eat World. For those who grew up at the time that I did, you probably know who this band is. Anyways, they have this haunting lyric about our human tendency to want to justify our inaction 
when we probably just need to do something. They sing this way. We've done nothing wrong, but we've done nothing. We can't look away, but we're just looking. It's second nature to say, hey, we've done nothing wrong. Or if you want to go back to the 1600s, um, the English theologian commenting on this text, Richard Baxter, he says it's something similar. He says, to do no harm is the praise of a stone, not a man. The assessment of, this mas- of the master is that the servant has acted in, in, in what's both wicked and lazy. Now, the word for lazy here is a Greek verb derived from, um, or it's derived from a verb that means to hesitate, to hesitate like because of fear. This man says that he acted out of fear. His fear, based out of a wrong-headed view of his master, led him to bury the talent in the ground rather than invest it out of faithfulness. So here's my question for you. What is it that you might be asked to do by God that you're afraid of? Don't answer out loud. That would get really awkward. But think of it for yourself. We can end up motivated by our fears. We can choose the road less risky or avoid altogether something that is right and true and good because, well, we might fail. Like, maybe that's our fear. It's just we're going to fail. Or we're going to look stupid in front of others. Or it might hurt. But a fear of failure and a fear of looking foolish can work powerfully against us living the kind of life Jesus is calling us to. One scholar writes in his commentary on Matthew 25, he says, risk is at the heart of discipleship. Or there's this, this, uh, this saying, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. And it doesn't take long to see it. Following Jesus, apprenticing ourselves to him will mean that you are not in control of where your life is going. Uh, you are not the center of it anymore. You are entrusting the leadership of your life to another who may take you into unknown territory and call you to do things that at least from the outside seem absolutely impossible but to do it for the glory of God. A missionary and scholar, Edward Schweitzer, he comments on this text. He says, Jesus is saying that a religion concerned only with not doing anything wrong in order that its practitioner may one day be able to stand vindicated before God ignores the will of God. The will of God is not that you stand still and just do nothing and try to just stay pure. That is not God's will for you. It's that you get to the business he's called you to. You've got to get to work. We all do. We have to get to work. We've done nothing wrong, but we've done nothing. That will not stand up at the end of the day. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 10, that it is only those who do the will of my Father in heaven who ultimately belong to his kingdom. Faith in Jesus will call you into kingdom life. It will press you into using every single thing he's put in your hands for him. The goal isn't to have done nothing wrong. The goal is to have done what he's asked you to do and to get to business in that sense. So to take and bury what he's given you is to disengage from kingdom life. It's to demonstrate that you are not or maybe never were someone who loved God. On the flip side, and there is a flip side, the first two servants give us examples of those who do love their master who want to serve him wholeheartedly. So, we've been warned. Yes, we have to hear it. We have to sit with that warning. Now let's turn to be encouraged by those two who are called good 
and faithful. Now, we find that the landowner in this text is entrusting a sum total of eight talents. That's what he has for his liquid investments. Now, a talent is a sum of money as bags of gold. That's what's been translated in the NIV uh, hints at. But, fun fact, our English word for talent, like our God-given abilities, um, comes directly from this parable. It arises from here. Uh, The Greek word is uh, talenton, and that's where we get our English word talent from. And it's, so it's an easy bridge to kind of go from this financial metaphor to all of the things God has entrusted to you, all of your abilities. So how much do you have to give? Maybe that's your question. You think, well, I don't really have that much. God hasn't entrusted me very much. I'm going to challenge that for a minute. Uh, the man who received one talent, we might think like, ah, oh, it's like a thousand bucks. And, and maybe he buries it because he thinks like it's just not, it's just chump change. It's not enough to really do anything with. Uh, Maybe it's just kind of insignificant. And you might feel like that today, that whatever God has given you is just not very much. So that temptation to bury it and not use it might be there for you. But let me just give you a little bit more. Um, One talent was essentially equivalent to half a lifetime of work for a peasant farmer at that time. Um, If we were to just sort of do some estimates, and one of the commentators does this in his his commentary, we could roughly translate these eight talents to about $4.3 million. So one one talent is just over like a fresh half million. It's not chump change. Or if we, and that's even hard for us to really imagine because um, we don't make what a peasant farmer made in the first century. So to translate into your kind of Canadian context, take home wage over half a lifetime for you just kind of a middle-class Canadian, uh, we're talking about like $1.2 to $2 million. That's, what he's, that's the one talent. Jesus wants us to understand that even the least amount that he's giving out on this day is like $2 million worth to you and to me. That sounds like a lot. So if you're tempted to think, I don't have very much in my hands, think again. He's telling you something different here. You have a lot to offer more than maybe you thought. My friend Lisa comes to mind as I was preparing this. I mean, she's authored a number of books. Uh, She's currently working on her Master of Education. She already has a Master degree in Social Work and two undergraduate degrees. Um, We've written articles for the newspaper together, and she regularly writes for a self-advocacy group as a way to support those with diverse abilities and help educate the broader public about the challenges that people with diverse abilities face today. She also serves on our benevolent committee here at Summit Drive. Listen to what she writes in this article. She says, it's probably important you know that as I sit in Zach's coffee shop on a Monday afternoon, I'm not the one typing the article. My friend David Fields is at the keyboard. The reason being is I have quadriplegic cerebral palsy. I'm restricted by my physical limitations and feel tempted to let myself be defined by these. On the other hand, I've worked hard to achieve my academic goals and can be tempted to find my identity in what I've accomplished. The truth is, I just want people to know me as Lisa and not be defined by my limitations or my achievements. Lisa's a great example to to me, to all of us, of someone who's recognized what God has given her and has got to work investing it, rather than worrying about what she doesn't have. She's a picture of someone who is investing her abilities to do the unique work God has called her to do, but resisting the urge to be defined by them. And you know, it's, it's easy to get focused on what abilities we don't have 
rather than using the ones that we do. And it's easy to grow envious of others and what they have as a result. And we live in a world that loves to compare, right? But envy is consistently listed in the vice lists all throughout the Bible. It's seen as something, a sin area that can trip us up and keep us from doing what God has called us to do. And envy isn't just about money, is it? Uh, Far more often it's about other things, natural ability that you see in someone else or body shape or looks, intellectual abilities, musical talent, or perhaps even things like the family that they grew up in. Man, they were so blessed to grow up in that family. Why couldn't I have had something like that as an experience? I mean, it's easy to point to social media as, you know, something that compounds that tendency to compare. That's fair enough. But honestly, this is nothing new. Um, Notice in 1 Corinthians 12, which we've been looking at through this series, Paul is warning this ancient community against thinking that their gifts or abilities don't matter. Just listen to how he puts it. It's really clever. This is verse 15 to 18. Now, if the foot should say, he's using the body as a metaphor for the body of Christ, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. You see what he's saying here? You are uniquely gifted, beautiful you. No one else can be you. You've probably heard that saying from Oscar Wilde, be yourself, everyone else is taken. Well, Paul said that long before. That's what he's saying here. Be you. You have a part to play. No one else can do it for you. One of the reasons we've been focusing on Psalm 139 is that, well, it's just true. You were not an accident. What God made was and still is wonderfully made, and you need to know it. And Jesus' parable implicitly says that to us again. So what do we do with our tendency to compare? Here's three things that you can maybe put to practice today. We listen to the voice of God instead of the voices in our own head telling us that we're a nobody. Two, we confess where we have let comparison or envy have a foothold in our lives. Maybe you just need to name those impulses uh, to look down on ourselves and what God has given us, to to list what they are and, and name them as lies that are intended by our enemy to bring distraction and disorder. And then three, you need to commit to using what you do have for God's glory and the good of those around you. In the article Lisa, uh, that I, Lisa and I wrote, we were talking about where our true identity comes from and, and what that does in us. Here's what we go on to say there. The problem with basing our identity either on what we have or what we've achieved is that we could feel superior to those who have less or who have achieved less or who are different from us. On the other hand, we could feel inferior to those who have more or who have accomplished more. What if we could get off that treadmill that comes from tying our sense of value and significance to our achievements? How can we be free? Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we root our deepest identity in his love for us, we find real freedom. 
freedom to stop competing with others or, you know, to feel that we're worthy, and instead the freedom to serve others with love and humility. How are we freed from comparing and competing? It's it's by looking up. It's by paying attention to what God says of us, and we already sang it this morning. That is the good news. Here's the last thing. Notice, both of the the two servants at the beginning, they receive word for word the exact same commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Identical words, an identical invitation to celebrate with joy, and identical reward, which means more responsibility into the future. What pleases the master? It wasn't actually the sum total at the end of the day. It was being faithful to using what they did have. Engaging your potential, your gifts, your ability for God's glory, that's what Jesus is calling us to do here. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's putting to use what you've been given. And my granny got it. Uh, Meet Florence Warby on the right-hand side there. This is a few years ago. She's in her mid-90s here. Um, she ran a bed and breakfast into, I believe it was her late 80s in Banff. She did it for decades. Uh, She offered hospitality, and then she used her earnings, so many of them, to support missionaries, and her fridge was just covered with the pictures of those that she supported regularly, both financially and in prayer and encouragement. She would often have them into her home while they were on furlough to just get rest and relaxation. Um, when she wasn't working that way, she would be gathering almost weekly. She would just have a group of young adults that she would gather around her table. Uh, she had cooked for kings and queens at the Banff Center for her like, previous career, and now she's cooking for young adults uh, weekly and then opening the scriptures and teaching them about God's will for them. That's what she did on a weekly basis. Every morning I would wander up when I was working in Banff over the summers, and I would find her with her Bible open in her lap. I could see her lips moving and muttering. These are muttering prayers for me and my brothers and my cousins because she wanted to see God's best for us. And this has to be one of my favorite pictures of all time. (laughs) Yes, that's my granny (laughs) playing my Gibson Les Paul standard. Uh... And the only reason I have such a beautiful guitar is that is, is her. Um, I had been to Calgary. I think I was, um, yeah, I was like 17 years old. No, I was in my 20s then. No, I was 19. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Uh, <clears throat> it was my day off. I had to go to Calgary to do some stuff. I stopped in at a vintage guitar shop, as one does. Um, and then when I was back, she asked me about my trip. I said it was good. We just chatted about it. And then I said, I, yeah, and I played this, this great guitar. And it was it's actually a really good deal for what it was but still way too much for me. And she said, well, how much? And I told her, and she just pulled out her checkbook and wrote the full amount. I said, what are you doing, Granny? Like, that is is ridiculously generous. And she said, you're going to use it to lead God's people in worship, right? I said, I am. Of course I am. That's what I I love to do. And I have, yes. And so my gran is the picture that comes to mind when I think of these words of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Whatever she had was about an investment into God's kingdom. That's what she did. Um, As I was finishing defending my doctoral thesis, um, she was, as I was told by the doctors, probably entering her last days of life. I had been in Nova Scotia, and so I rerouted my flight so that I could stop in in Calgary and go and visit her maybe one last time. So I made the trip into Banff, 
and uh, found her in the hospital. And one of the reasons I wanted to stop was to show her the dedication of my now past thesis to my grandmother, Florence Warby, who consistently demonstrated in word and deed that participating with God in his mission is the business of every believer. And to my boys, Connor and Adam, that you would grow to be continuously captured by the love of God expressed in Jesus and be moved by the Spirit to play your part in the unfolding drama of God's redemption. And God has made you uniquely, beautifully, to play your part in the unfolding drama of God's redemption. Not all of us are going to write books like Lisa. Not all of us are going to have the physical strength that my granny did into her 80s and 90s to work tirelessly. In the parable, each person is given different amounts based on their abilities to work with it. But like them, we do have those abilities, and God has put things in our hand to invest as we are able. I think of Jim and Marilyn White consistently giving their kind presence and encouragement to our community. I think of Joel Wiest. I mentioned him in our, uh, the beginning of the service. He's just been gathering the community of young adults and making them feel welcome and serving so wholeheartedly. I think of Terry Viranesi as she uh, works to educate her kids at home, both intellectually and spiritually. I think of Ashley Woods as she gives herself to raising her little ones and then singing on stage here whenever she's able. I think of you as well, some of you who are maybe bound to a bed because of a physical illness or a mental illness, but who are nonetheless uttering simple prayers or maybe just tears on behalf of others. I think of all of you who are working hard at your jobs in the marketplace and praying for your coworkers or those that you're serving to show the goodness of Jesus, all of it investment in the kingdom. There's this time when Jesus feeds a group of over 5,000 in the wilderness. Some of you remember this story. It's kind of crazy um, because he asked the disciples to do something about it. He's like, they're hungry. We should send them away. He said, you feed them. And they're like, what do we do now? And they found this little boy. And this little boy had five little loaves, these little flatbread cakes, think of a pita, and two fish. And they said, well, he's got this. And Jesus is great. And he takes it and he breaks it and it just keeps multiplying. What matters is not how much you had in your hand. Because in the economy of the kingdom, Jesus takes whatever you offer him, and he breaks it, and he makes it work. And it's more than enough. So I invite you. I can invite you to stand, actually, as the worship team comes. Why don't you stand? And here's just the question I'm going to ask. The question is just this. What's in your hands? You might think it's like, five loaves and two fish. It's pretty small. Remember, whatever he's given you is actually quite a lot. Maybe some of you even just want to close your eyes and hold out your hands like this and just imagine those things God has entrusted to you. What has he put in your hands? What has he given you? Now, just answer this for yourself. What will I do with these abilities, with the time, the talents, and the treasures he's given me? May we be those who don't even dream of burying them but who live as good and faithful servants, investing it all for the joy of our master. Let me pray for you. Jesus, in this moment, as we think of this story that you told, we want to take seriously both your warnings and your encouragements. 
Jesus, we thank you that you have loved us all the way to the grave and back. And now, Jesus, we receive what you've done for us and want to offer ourselves and all you've put in our hands back for your glory. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.